0: Good evening, and welcome to Deb's podcast. Today we are going to be referencing the St. Alphonsus Liguori Considerations of Eternal Truths, the Fishers of Men through the newsletter of the Franciscan Missionaries of the Eternal Word, and A Minute in the Church, Volume 2, One Minute Answers to Questions about the Catholic Faith by Gus Lloyd. Good evening my brothers and sisters. I'd like to start this evening with talking about the little booklet written by Gus Lloyd and how he references, beautifully references, our Blessed Mother Mary. I'm gonna share with you two topics, Mary Mother of God, Mary Queen of Heaven. We're gonna start with Mary Queen of Heaven. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is for those who have questioned Mary being a queen. Uh, The Catholic Church refers to the Blessed Virgin Mary as the queen of heaven. How can this be, says the detractors? Jesus is our king and he never married. So how can there be a queen? A look into scripture tells a story. Jesus came to sit on the throne of David for eternity. In the Davidic kingdom, there was a throne at the right hand of the king's throne that was reserved for the queen. Only here it was not reserved for any wife of the king, but the king's mother. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 19. Then Solomon sat down upon his throne, and a throne was provided for the king's mother, who sat at his right. This throne for the queen mother was a fixture in the kingdom of David. Throughout 1st and 2nd Kings, as each new king ascends to the throne of David, the queen mother is listed. As Jesus occupies his throne in heaven, the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom, so his mother Mary sits on the throne at his right. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 20, the queen mother wishes to ask her son a favor. Ask it, my mother, the king said to her, for I will not refuse you. This is why Catholics seek the intercession of Mary. Jesus will never refuse his mother. And then at the bottom of the page, Gus Lloyd Um, offers us further study from 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 19-20. As mentioned, the Queen's Mothers are listed throughout 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. So you can do that further research on your own. Let's go to Mary, Mother of God. The Catholic Church refers to Mary as the Mother of God. In the Hail Mary prayer we pray, Hail Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners. Some people object to that title, saying that would mean Mary existed before God. That's not what the Church teaches at all. Here's the deal. In the 5th century, there was a bishop named Nestorius, who claimed that Jesus did not have a human and a divine nature. He objected to the Greek term Theotokos, or God-bearer, for Mary. At the Council of Ephesus in 431 A.D., Cyril of Alexandria, argued that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man, that he had two natures, human and divine. The Council agreed with Cyril and bestowed upon Mary the title Theotokos. Theotokos. This is where we get the term, Mother of God. So you see, calling Mary the Mother of God is really just affirming the divinity of Christ. If we believe that Jesus is true God and true man, and Mary is his mother, then calling her the mother of God just makes sense." And then he goes on to reference reference in the Catholic Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 495, you could do further research on the Blessed Virgin Mary. Next we're going to go to the newsletter of the Franciscans Missionaries of the Eternal Word in Alabama. This was written in January of 2021 titled Mary, Mother of the Most Holy Eucharist. I believe I've shared this once before on the podcast, but like I say to you, I always try to bring Mary more fully to us in the days coming ahead. Wherever you find a love for and a devotion to the Virgin Mother of God, invariably you find a more fervent response to Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. We could never speak in terms of eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Son of God Had it not been for Mary who channeled the human body and human soul to Him for us to eat and to drink. Some would say that Mary's union with her divine Son in Holy Communion from the hand of St. John the Apostle was more intimate, even closer than when the Son of God was wrapped for nine months in her immaculate flesh. The fully matured human consciousness of Jesus is present in the risen Lord of the Holy Eucharist. Mary is the mediatrix of all grace especially the greatest grace and the gift of all, her divine Son in the sacrament of his love. She it was who stood so bravely beside him at the foot of the cross during his first Mass, as he hung there dying, making available to us until the end of time his most precious body and blood. A father of the Church went so far as to say that Mary would have been willing to slay her divine Son with her own hands, if that were God's will, just as Abraham was prepared to slay his son Isaac at the request of God. The only measure of Mary's love is to always be without measure, just as with Jesus on the cross and on the altar. It isn't true. We do well things, the things we prepare well for. When God the Father sent God the Son into the world, he was not too particular about his son's food or clothing or lodging. But he was most particular about the appointments of his mother. She had to be perfect, and she was in virtue of her Immaculate Conception. Mary can teach us, too, to ready the homes of our hearts for Jesus' coming in Holy Communion. Listen to her, imitate her readiness, behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. That was Mary's fiat. The priest echoes Mary's fiat over the bread and wine at Holy Mass. This is my body, this is my blood. Mary's shrines throughout the world are the refuge of sinners, where countless numbers repent to be prepared for the Holy Eucharist. Perhaps after many years of wandering about in the midst, no doubt it was Mary who dried the tears of St. Peter after he had denied Jesus three times, so that he might return to the altar. Mary is the mother of the Good Shepherd who will still feed us with his body and blood, His truth and His love so that we will not faint on the way. Pray for us, sinners, Mary, at the hour of our death, so that we might receive holy viaticum, our food for our trip into eternity. I can hear Jesus say, She who gave me my flesh and my blood has everlasting life, and I have assumed her into myself in glory. Heaven is a place, not just a state, because there are two glorified bodies there, Jesus and Mary, I would expect them to be close also on earth because it was Mary who made Jesus available on the altar of her womb to be the sacrifice of the cross. Now, this wonderful book titled St. Alphonsus Liguori, Considerations of Eternal Truth, was copyrighted in 1926. In it, there is a page that is solely reflective of the day of the week. So I'm gonna open up the page to Monday. This is Monday evening. And the meditation for Monday is the importance of our last end. Now, I hope that this reading touches your life, stirs your heart, moves your soul to do something more than what you're doing right now in your state of life as a faith-filled Christian. And if you're not a faith-filled Christian and you're listening in on this, you're gonna receive a very special blessing from God. Because when I went to um, visit family and I discovered this book years and years ago, I too received a special grace just by having the considerations of the eternal truths in my home. So today I'd like to bless you. The importance of our last end. Consider, oh man, how important it is to you to save your soul. Your dearest interests are there concerned because if you attain salvation, you will be eternally happy in the enjoyment of every good, both of soul and body. But in losing it, you lose your soul and your body. Heaven and God. You will be eternally miserable, eternally damned. Your only important, your only necessary affair, therefore, is to serve your God and to save your soul. Do not then, O Christian, think of serving your passions now and of giving yourself to God hereafter. Oh, how many has this false and deceitful hope precipitated into hell. Thousands of sinners have flattered themselves with the hope of future repentance, but the day in which they hoped never arrived, and they are now suffering without resource the torments of the damned. And who amongst them are ever thought of falling into that place of woe? Which of them had not the intention of saving his soul? But God curses him that sins in the hope of pardon. You say perhaps within yourself, I will commit this sin and then repent. But are you sure that time will be allowed you for repentance? You may die the moment you have sinned. By sinning, you lose the grace of God. And what if you never more recover it God shows mercy to those who fear him, but not to those who condemn and despise him. Think not, therefore, that it will cost you no more to repent of and confess three sins than to repent of and confess one sin. No, in this thought you are deceived. God might pardon you a first or a second sin, but not a third, he has patience with the sinner for a time, but not forever. When the measure of inequity is filled up, his mercy ceases, and he punishes the impenitent sinner either by death or by abandoning him to a reprobate sense in which state he goes on from sin to sin without remorse and at length is precipitated into hell. O Christian, attend seriously to this. It is time you should put an end to your disorders and return to God. You should fear lest this be the last warning that he will ever send you. You have offended him long enough and he has borne with you long enough in your sins. Tremble then lest he should forsake you after the next mortal sin. O how many souls has this striking thought of eternity caused to retire from the disorders and dangers of the world, to live in cloisters, solitudes, and deserts? Unfortunate sinner that I have been, what is the fruit of all my crimes? A conscience gnawed with despair, a troubled heart, a soul overwhelmed with grief, hell deserved and God lost? Ah, my God my Heavenly Father, bind me to Thy love. Consider, O man, that this affair of eternity is above all others the most neglected. Mankind have time to think of everything but God and salvation. If a man of the world is advised to frequent the sacraments, or to spend a quarter of an hour daily in meditation. He will immediately say, I have a family to provide for. I have my business to attend to. I have sufficient to keep me employed. Good God, and have you not a soul to save? Will your riches and your family be able to assist you at the hour of your death or deliver you from hell if you are condemned? No. No. Flatter not yourself that you are able to reconcile God and the world, heaven and sin together. Salvation is not to be attained by a life of indolence and ease. It is necessary to use violence and to make great efforts in order to obtain the crown of immorality. How many Christians have flattered themselves with the idea of serving God and saving their souls hereafter, who are at the moment and will forever be in the flames of hell? How great is the folly of men in attending to what will so shortly terminate, and thinking so little of that state which will never end. Ah, Christian, put your affairs in order. Reflect that your all is at stake. Remember that in a very short time your body will be deposited in the earth and your soul will go to dwell in the house of eternity. How dreadful then will be your misfortune if you are condemned to the eternity of woe. Reflect well on this, for then you can have no remedy. And lastly, St. Alphonsus Liguori reminds us, consider and say within yourself, I have a soul, and if I lose it all, is lost. I have a soul, and if in losing it, I were to gain the whole world, what would it profit me? I have a soul, but if I lose it, although I were to arrive at the highest pinnacle of glory, of what advantage will it be to me? If I hoard up riches, if I go forward to in the world, but in the end lose my soul, what would be my consolation? Where are now the dignities, pleasures, and vanities of those great ones of the world, whose bodies are moldering in the dust and whose souls are a prey to the flames of hell. Since then I have a soul and only one to save, and if I lose it once, it is lost forever. I ought to endeavor to save it. This is an affair of the highest importance to me. Eternal happiness and eternal misery are at stake. Oh my God, I am forced to acknowledge with shame and confusion that I have hitherto blindly wandered astray from thee. I have scarcely ever thought seriously of saving my soul. O my Father, save me through Jesus Christ. I am willing to part with everything here, provided I do not lose thee. O Mary, my surest hope, save me by thy powerful intercession. And look at how beautifully this is written, my brothers and sisters. And St. Alphonsus LaGloria recognizes our Blessed Mother, calls on our Blessed Mother in his last words to be our surest hope and our most powerful intercession. And also, I'd like to close tonight with indulgences. I think a lot of us don't truly understand what they are. And I have a booklet here on the Rosarian's Handbook and it's of the Society of the Rosary Altar, second edition. It was copyrighted in 1992 by the Dominican Friars, Province of St. Joseph. In 1967, Pope Paul issued his Apostolic Constitution on Indulgences, Indulcion Arium Doctrina, This document contains the new rules on indulgences and reaffirms the power of the Church to grant indulgences to the faithful for the remission of temporal punishment due to sin. Stress is now laid on the disposition of the person gaining the indulgence and on the actions of the Christian rather than an object or places. The number of indulgences that may be gained is greatly curtailed. Only one plenary indulgence may be gained on any one day with the exception of the day of one's death. With regard to partial indulgences, the old classification by days and years is abandoned. Partial indulgences may be gained more than once a day. All indulgences are applicable to the souls in purgatory. The New Rules on Indulgences An indulgence is the cancellation in God's sight of the temporal punishment due for sin. When the sin's guilt has already been pardoned, With the church as intermediary, a Christian who is properly disposed and who fulfills certain well-defined conditions can obtain an indulgence. An indulgence is partial if it frees a Christian partially from the temporal punishment due for his or her sins, plenary if it frees wholly. Both partial and plenary indulgences can always be applied to the dead, but only by way of suffrage. A partial indulgence shall in the future be called a partial indulgence without any reference to time, whether in days or years. A plenary indulgence can be gained only once a day, except by those who stand on the threshold of death. To gain a plenary indulgence, the person concerned must perform the indulgenced act. Three conditions must also be satisfied several days before or after the indulgence act. A sacramental confession, Eucharistic communion, and prayers for the Pope's intentions. In addition, the person concerned must be free from all attachment to sin, even to venial sin. If this complete integrity is not present or the above conditions are not fulfilled, the indulgence is only partial. May God bless you, my brothers and sisters, on this evening, and we pray ever so fervently for the unborn, yet to be born in their mother's womb, for those women that are considering not having their children, we are praying that their mothers look up to Mary, look up to Jesus, look up to the light of the world and ask God and Mary to help them carry that child. And also um, any special intentions you may have this evening, I want you to know that I am holding you very close in prayer and Every prayer that you say from the heart is heard from our Blessed Mother, who presents it directly to her Son. May God bless you, may God love you in every way imaginable, and may He carry you close to Him on your last day, Amen.